right, welcome back to uh, welcome back to School of Science Radio. I'm Matthew Chandler. Uh, no Juno this week, but I'm glad to say we're joined by um, one of the athletics Everton correspondents, Paddy Boyland. How are you doing today, Paddy? I'm good. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Pleasure as always. No worries. Um, sadly, another defeat that we have to steer over. Although this one probably less kind of um, unexpected, and certainly a few of the uh, the goodison ones uh, we've had lately. Um, Everton going down out of the FA Cup at the quarterfinals on Saturday to Man City um, in what was maybe a better performance, but maybe not a surprising. Surprising outcome. Um, Paddy, the first thing I wanted to ask you was um, when when the team came in. Obviously, four changes. Um, Virginia uh, in for Pickford with him and Olsen injured, and uh, Mina Coleman, Sigurdsson coming in. Did you were you surprised by the setup that Carl and Shorty went for on Saturday, or or did you? Um, I mean, was it the way you would have gone? I think we got to a point around Christmas where a team sheet would come out and it would genuinely take me about half an hour to work out what they were doing or what they were attempting to do with that starting lineup and with, with that system. Remember it against Wolves, remember it against Leicester. But I think there are now quite distinct patterns in how Everton approach games. And this, to me, quite evidently seemed to follow the blueprint that he's used more or less throughout now the past two or three months, certainly against supposed big six, top six teams. So no, I wasn't particularly surprised. We, we did a podcast on The Athletic the week before the game and I kind of expected something where you had, because of City's fullbacks, you had Coleman and Luca Dean reverting back to kind of man-marking roles, but that they would do those man-marking roles on Zinchenko and probably Cancelo and follow them in field because cities as we all know cities fullbacks are among their most creative players they are effectively playmakers in this system particularly when De Bruyne's not around so I was kind of expecting that we obviously didn't get that we we instead had Coleman squaring up with Sterling and Luca Dean doing similar on the other side of the pitch the other changes you you mentioned there Virginia that that that's completely expected of course because Pickford and Olsen were out Sigurdsson, while he is a divisive figure among the fan base, he's one of those guys that Ancelotti and other Everton managers in fairness turn to time and time again in big games. Just because I think, in, in, particularly in this kind of match, he can come up with a moment. And at Everton, we've been very dependent on moments over the past three, four, five months of the season, basically since the, the first derby where, we, where we've been more defensive what we've noticed is that there's a pattern where Everton don't actually create many chances at all, particularly against those big six sides. And they look to strike through a moment of quality from a Sigurdsson, Hammers, or a, a set piece with, with somebody like Calvert-Lewin or Richarlison getting on the end of it. So, no, I wasn't particularly surprised by the setup. I did expect them to go to a back five, as it was. It was a 5-3-2, I'd, I'd, I'd probably call it. And... The game probably played out, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but the game probably played out pretty much as I would have expected. It felt like a rerun of mm-hmm. the City home game from a couple of months ago. It felt like a little bit of a rerun of the Manchester United Cup 
Carabao Cup quarter final. Although the only thing I'd say is that while there were late goals in in all of those games, I thought mm. this was a slightly better performance. This was the best of those three that I mentioned. Yeah, I would I would go along with that. I I would agree with the rerun of the city. I think the United Cup game. I felt we started that game really in a really sort of timid fashion and looked. Mm. Man United battered us for the first 15, 20, or really most that first half, especially. It felt like a matter of time before we we would concede. I felt like Everton, I never felt like Everton were going to win on Saturday. I never felt they, they looked like they were going to score, um, really. But I did feel it was a more disciplined performance in the main. It looked like maybe some lessons had been learned from that, that first City game as well, where I think we were more dominated by Man City personally. I thought we had a better better grip on them until they obviously go and score right at the end. But um, I mean, one of the things I've seen some people say is that because it was a cup game, maybe that lended itself to Everton having more of a go and and being a bit more cavalier because they had less to lose. Do you, do you go along with that? Because for me, I look at like the, the second City goal, for example, when Everton just have to go hell for leather because it's right at the end and one nil down. And City break away and score um, through De Bruyne. That, for me, seems like more what the game would have been like had we gone for it a bit more and been more open and expansive against them. Yeah, I, I mean, I've seen this argument on Twitter and the first thing I point out is that it's mainly from people that don't follow Everton week in, week out. <laughs> um, it's, it's been from kind of Ma- Manchester United correspondents and Liverpool <laughs> supporters and, and people basically that didn't want Manchester City to win. The really strange thing and the perverse thing here is that I felt this was actually in a bizarre way, Everton being ultra-defensive was the best way of them getting a result here. If they'd gone out and gone hell for leather, they would have left space in behind. And I just think that's absolutely criminal, the way Kamikaze defending, the way the way Manchester City are at the moment. Yeah, you look at and I'm sure we'll come on to this in a bit, but City completely dominated possession throughout. I think they were allowed to dominate possession throughout because Everton sat so deep. But they didn't really create a meaningful meaningful chance, to my mind, before Sterling's opportunity in the second half. And I can't remember exactly when that was, probably around the hour mark. Yeah, 58, um, I think, just before. Yeah, but there was that telling that, that, that I retweeted it around half-time, and it was the City had had all these passes, way more passes than Everton. I think they tripled or, or quadrupled the amount of passes Everton had in the first half. But Everton had had four shots in the box to, to City's one. Yeah. That was a sign for me that the game plan was actually working, that Everton didn't actually need to change too much. What you're talking about here is if Yerry Mina's header is, is an inch to the left of, I think it was Zinchenko on the post, Zinchenko, might yeah. have been, might, yeah, Zinchenko. With an inch to, to his left, that, that's a goal, and Everton heading 1-0. Most sides have, have really, really struggled with City this season. So that represented quite a decent effort from, effort, effort from Everton in the first half. So no, I, I don't agree with that. I think I think that's naive in the extreme, particularly given the resources at Everton's disposal. You, you're talking about a third choice keeper who was making his his first start against Premier League quality opposition. I know he came off the bench at Burnley, did very well, all things considered. But this was a step up, a massive step up again in in an FA Cup quarter final. The other thing is you look at the midfield and while I didn't necessarily agree with the omission of Tom Davis, the, the three that were selected, Alan, 
Gomez and Sigurdsson are far from the most mobile. That must be one of the slowest midfielders, midfielders, midfield, sorry, you're likely to get in the league. If Everton had gone box to box, then they'd have been destroyed in that part of the pitch. This was practically the only way to go. And I think it worked for about 60 minutes before City were able to call on a really impressive attacking Arsenal. Everton tired and they started to rush clearances. And it was just the the regular concession of, of the ball, regular possession that ended up telling for me. Uh, but I actually thought it was a pretty decent effort, all things considered. I think the subs bench is, is kind of where... I, don't, I mean, Man City subs didn't win the game for them. I know De Bruyne scored, but that felt indicative of just kind of where Everton, <laughs> you know, couldn't couldn't match City really. Because yes. you look at how, you know, Everton looked short of energy and they've got nobody to really... The only one who came on was Alex Awobi, who seems to probably be Everton's most divisive player at the moment. <laughs> um, they bring him on in the 87th minute. Man City bring on De Bruyne, who scores, and then I think they had six Premier League winners on the bench or something, so... That in itself is just kind of telling of, you know, what 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 Ancelotti had to play with and what Pep Guardiola in in comparison had to play with. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I mean, Greg O'Keefe wrote a very nice piece um, for the Athletic about Virginia. He talked to um, uh, was uh, Oliveira, the the goalkeeper, didn't he? Um, about about his development. I mean, I th- I thought. Like like you said, I didn't think he didn't have massive amounts to do in terms of saves, but I thought he he did it as well as could be expected. Really, I thought Godfrey in front of him did was a standout. I thought Yerry Mina slotted in well. I don't think, I don't think there was any Everton players really who you could you could say came off the pitch with and couldn't sort of be commend be not commended, but just I felt they gave as good as they they could really and under the circumstances. I don't think there was anyone who let Everton down particularly. No, I would I would agree with that. And you, you highlighted Virginia and Ben Godfrey. They were the two best players for me as well. I, th- yeah. I thought Godfrey was pretty immense throughout, as he has been now for a good couple of months. Came in and, and obviously did a job at left-back, but that was never going to be his position moving forward. And I'm really not sold on the idea of him playing in, in central midfield either, to be honest with you. Um, he He was great. Those guys provided an awful lot of cover. And this this is what I'm saying. I go back to the point. When was City's first big chance in this game? It was that sterling opportunity. And that's around the hour mark, we think. So that that tells a story for me, given how creative and how effective they have been in attack, how free-flowing they've been in attack over the over the season as a whole, more or less. On Virginia, I agree with you. He didn't have a lot to do, but it's almost more impressive when you get a lad that comes in and pretty much is silent for 50, mm. 60 minutes, and then is forced into action. Hugo Oliveira, the, the former goalkeeping coach at Everton, picked up on this. It's that it's 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 that concentration. It's being switched on, as well as the execution of the save. I think, which is which is so impressive in in that particular instance with with the Sterling shot. Uh, some other good stuff as well. He, he, he took a few daisy cutters. I think it was from. Sterling and maybe also from Phil Foden yeah. in the first half, which just steadied him. They were almost kind of range finders from the City lads. But I thought this was impressive. It, I, I really did. I just, I just It followed on for me from the Burnley game where there was one incident 
Godfrey kind of got in his way and diverted the ball and he, it looked like Virginia had come out flapping. But apart from that, he'd done everything you could have expected from him. And I think it's the same again here. It, <laughs> felt really sorry for him when he makes that save from Laporte mm. and then the ball bounces right back to Gundogan unmarked in the box. It felt, <laughs> felt particularly cruel on him. That and you could see from his reaction that he was he was visibly disappointed by it. But he's advanced his claims in the absence of the, the two senior goalkeepers. He, I think he can come away with his head held high. And broadly, I think Everton can do that as well. You, you mentioned there the, the other performances. Maybe there were some ineffect, ineffectual performances. Yeah, People like Sigurdsson, for example, didn't really get into the game in any meaningful way. Luca Dean created the odd chance, but didn't really look like a coherent attacking force for the full 90 minutes. Nobody, I would suggest, let the side down. And I think it was, going back to the point about the benches, you've got to remember that some of the lads on the Everton bench are out of contract at the end of the season and actually haven't been offered new contracts. So it goes how sh- goes to show how stretched they were. You didn't even have people like Joshua King, Bernard available. And I think even then, it would have been a tall ask for those guys to come on and, and switch things around. It was threadbare. It was, they really were down to the bare bones. And honestly, looking at the team sheet before the game, I don't think I expected anything more. This was kind of it, it was mm. a decent effort. It was kind of par for the course, given given what we saw from the from the two sides. Just a reminder that Everton do need to continue to build, and that Ancelotti's had one window in which to spend money. Guardiola's been there for eons now, yeah. uh, and has has had the chance to build a squad over time. I think we we need to assess Everton again. Once Ancelotti is afforded the opportunity to do do just that himself, yeah, I mean, I wrote a piece for the site about. I, I mean, I personally felt there's probably more good things to take away. I know the result is kind of the overriding thing, but I just felt apart from that, you couldn't really fault Everton. And I think one of the things I would say is I think you can you could tell from watching it which team had had the same manager for five years and which yeah. team had them, had their manager for what was it fifty seven games now. Um, because they Manchester City have obviously signed signed well, they've had a lot more obviously resources than Everton have, but they look a lot further down the road in their kind of development as a team than Everton, than Everton do. And I don't expect Everton to ever kind of match Man City's level particularly, but I think you could tell that Everton is still kind of in the sort of embryonic stages of their development with Ancelotti. Um, yeah, and I think you know. Like you said, I think if we're still seeing performances like this in a sort of hollow victory, if you like, in maybe a year or two down the line, I think that's when you'd maybe expect more from Everton as a as a as a unit. Um, but I think for now, all things considered, given the kind of the mitigating factors, the caveats, um, I think it's, it's hard to to sort of go all in on Everton as as people have done in after previous home. Home, uh, home defeat. Um, yeah, well, look, you, you, look, you can you can criticise what happened against Burnley, Newcastle, Fulham. I think that's fair game, and I actually do believe that Ancelotti got things wrong in those matches with with the setup and and some of the substitutions he made when when chasing those matches. Here, I, I think it's a different story. I mean, we have to be a little bit realistic. That that sounds defeatist, but I think there needs to be a little bit of realism here. You you mention how many games. Guardiola's had in, in comparison to Ancelotti. And what you get in that time is the evolution of style. 
Mm, and exactly. intricacies being honed week in, week out on the training ground. One of the things I would point out from this season, first of all, is that a lot of the time when these players, particularly when these players have been in a Monday, Thursday, Monday pattern with matches, a lot of those days after the games are rest days. And then the following day, you'll probably start on some video work. So sessions on the on the actual training ground, working on tactics, working on technical issues, they've been few and far between anyway. The other point is that in this season, maybe maybe more so than any other season in Premier League history, this season is where squad depth tells. Mm. It's no surprise that Manchester City are running away with things to the extent they are, given that they are able to swap out Phil Foden for Riyad Mahrez and there's no discernible drop-off in quality. They can bring De Bruyne and various others off the bench against Everton. Sergio Aguero's there. These guys, Some of these guys have not had much of a look-in. And yet, it's it Cancelo out for, for Kyle Walker. Well, if let's say, for example, if something had happened to Yerry Mina or Ben Godfrey, we'd have been down again. We'd have been, we'd have been looking at kind of makeshift options there. And Mason Holgate's had to play on the right-hand side an awful lot already this season. So they, they have been strapped. They have been unlucky with injuries. But it's about building. And I think that that squad depth, it's, we've, we've got a bloated squad. We've got loads of guys here that, haven't got a future at the club and aren't going to be used. Players like people like Mo Besic, who's part of the 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 twenty five man squad registered with the Premier League, but just nowhere to be seen. Players that have been out with injury now for month upon month. So it's kind of wasted space, and certainly wasted wages. And City don't just City don't have that. They don't have wastage. And I think this is where we need to get to. It, it needs to be streamlined. It needs to be thought out. And I think. We do need to see signs over time of, of a style evolving because I think the, the criticism of Everton at the moment is that they're quite they're quite solid defensively when they sit deep and they look to deprive space in between the lines. They defend set pieces pretty well. They attack set pieces pretty well. And then when you've got Hamez and Calvert-Lewin, Sigurdsson plays of, of that quality, you know you're always likely to be able to pinch a goal. But what happens when you have 65 70% of possession yeah. What is your identity in possession? Sometimes I don't see that. I, I've not I've not seen that manifest itself to any reasonable extent. I thought I had at the start of the season when when Everton really did blow some teams away, um, but it almost feels like they've forgotten how to do that uh, yeah. because of the route they've been forced down through injuries. We know Ancelotti's a pragmatist. We know he'll more or less adapt game by game, depending on who he's got available and and who they're facing. The problem with that is that at some point there needs to be more. You can't just completely lurch in between systems and personnel and styles. It's good to be flexible by all means, but I think you need to you need to develop something that shows what the end game is, what this group of players are actually looking to do. And I think that will help, not in games maybe against Manchester City, yeah. because I think we, we've both given Everton credit for that. Uh, but I think more in these matches against Burnley, Newcastle and Fulham, the ones where at the end of the season, we're going to look back on those and go, if Everton had even picked up four points against Newcastle and four points against Burnley and they'd beaten, let's say, for example, Fulham at Goodison, where would they have got to in this table? And I'm, mm. <laughs> I think that's going to be the, the real bugbear come the end of the season. And that's the thing, more than anything, more than the record against the big, the big six teams, that's the thing that needs to improve, I'd suggest, for next season. Yeah, I mean, I did a 
I did a piece a few weeks ago looking at just like um, it was after the Southampton game when I was I had a look at like our, our possession stats for the season just to see how it compares with you know games we've lost and games we've won. I think Evans' average possession is like five percent higher in games they've lost. I think they've only yeah. had the, the, the majority. I think in like they've won fourteen. I think I'm there. I think the majority of possession they've only had in like three of those wins. They they have yeah. so many they have so many more touches of the ball in games they lose. Um, <laughs> And even the goals, you know, like I think I think three quarters of our goals have been one touch finishes. So, you know, it's not like yeah. we're walking the ball in. I think it, I don't think it's unfair to say we're quite a basic team. I just think that's the reality of where we are at the moment. I think by and large, we've done the basics pretty well this season. Um, I think that that in itself is signs of progress because these last few years, I just felt like I haven't kept making the same elementary mistakes. The obvious the obvious kind of blips have been the home games, but. I think once once we kind of find a way through these games, which I personally think might even itself out a bit when crowds are back. I know that's not the only reason yeah. why, but I just think I, th- I think that does undeniably play some factor. No, I um, agree. I think that's the next step. Um, and, then in, and then obviously, you know, adding more players to this kind of cluster of, you know, Luca Dean, James Rodriguez, Richarlison, et cetera, who, who feel like Everton sort of, not only options, but just kind of they need more than those kind of two or three players, don't they, as, as a creative force? Because you look like you said, you look in reserve, and there isn't there isn't very much there for Ancelotti to to pick through. Um, no, well, I, I think that's entirely right, and I go back time and time again. Um, so apologies if people are listening and find this a bit boring by now. I go back time and time again to the it was the second game of the Premier League season, I think, against West Brom, and James had shone. On his home debut, he looked really, really good. Everton had played scintillating football at times. And Ancelotti was asked about the situation after the game and effectively said, and I'm, I'm, I am paraphrasing here, when we have the ball, we need to give it to James. And when James doesn't have space, we need to play simple. Mm. And effectively, there is an over-reliance on him in particular when Everton are in possession. The issue with that is that if you're Bruno Fernandes and you play 40, 50 games a season, it's fine. Manchester United at some point may come unstuck, but they they know they can more or less bank on Fernandes' fitness. With Everton, there's a history going back five, six, seven years now of James Rodriguez missing probably a third to a half of every club season. Yeah, And Everton have still not solved a way. I think they responded in, in the main, as Ancelotti does, they responded to personnel issues such as James' injuries by going more defensive and looking to sneak things from set pieces. And I, I do understand that. But like you say, it's about building up a, a core of players that are able to manage the ball better, I think. And I was a last game I covered at Goodison was Burnley, unfortunately. <laughs> um, as, as most people know, the press box is housed in, in Goodison's main stand, just above the director's box. And what was so apparent to me was the extent to which Burnley effectively gave Everton free reign on the right-hand side. Everton, play, Everton didn't play a back five that day. They played, it was 4-4-2 diamond, as we know, in the in the first half mm. and shifted after the break to more of a, well, after 30 minutes, I should say, to more of a conventional 4-4-2. Burnley knew where Everton's threat was coming from with Ahamis. They shifted across and made sure Luca Dean didn't have any time or space to deliver in the main. And on the other side, Mason Holgate was allowed to do whatever he wanted because they were pretty sure that he wasn't going to go on a run and take on three or four of their defenders and he wasn't going to put across 
on Calvert-Lewin's head at the back stick. Now, occasionally he might, but the statistical evidence suggests that that's not Mason Holgate. No. And that actually, I think the loss of Seamus Coleman has also hit Everton quite hard. As as people that read The Athletic will know, we've, we've spoken quite a lot about Everton's search for, for a right back. And I think that was something that, that, that started a good number of years ago, actually. Um, but we'll continue this summer. But it's just, it's too easy, I think, to shut down Everton. And um, this is not an um, Everton nil Manchester City 2 in the FA Cup quarterfinal <laughs> problem. This is an Everton, if they want to push on for Europe issue, I think, in the in the, the final 10 games of the season. They do have to play some big sides, but you only have to look at the game next up, which is Crystal Palace. You know exactly how Crystal Palace are going to play it and exactly the, the kinds of issues Everton are likely to have. Now, you probably expect Hammers to be back for that one. Certainly, that's what the club are indicating right now. Um, so that inordinately improves, improves options anyway and means that they're more likely than not to find a moment from somewhere. But like we like we're saying, I think the the end goal you can't you can't look back at the Manchester City game with too much regret given the resources at the disposal. But you can look at those games against Burnley, Fulham, Newcastle, various other sides where they dominated the ball and didn't really do anything with it. You can look back at those and think what might have been, and that's almost that, that's almost more of a challenge, I think, than finding a blueprint of just kind of sitting deep against the Manchester City. It also almost requires more thought. And more work on the, on the training ground, so that's what I'm interested to see. To be honest with you, between now and the end of the season, but also next season, they are more solid. You, you you're entirely right in saying they're more solid. They they're doing the basics much better, and I think they have made some solid additions to that squad, particularly with Godfrey, Ducore, Alan. They are they are quality players on their day. So it's just about I don't know. I think it, if you put another two or three on top of those in different positions, let's say right back. I still think if you're playing with Charles in field, that effectively means that you've got no width mm. in, in high up the pitch in, in advanced areas. So you probably need to look to bring in, if you reclassify Richarlison, you're probably looking to bring in at least one winger. And this is my personal opinion rather than something that I, yeah. I, I know the club will are, are looking at. But Theo Walcott's gone and he's going to be out of contract in the, in the, in the summer. Richarlison, if he's playing in this centre-left position, as Ancelotti calls it, Everton don't actually have wingers as such. It won't be in Bernard. Both want to come inside. So I think they could do with that. That's like a more direct option. Somebody that's going to make the run in behind and stretch the defence and in turn give more more space to the number 10s and the, and the central midfielders to pick those passes. At the moment, I just think everything's in front of the opposition mm. in um, in some of these matches. Um, so it's, it's room for progress, but, but like you say, I think on the whole... It, they they are sticking in games and they are competing against. I would suggest the big six much better than they have done in previous years. Yeah, I think ultimately I think we should be beaten by a much better team on on Saturday, won't we? And I think after the break um, we should have a lot more games where you look at and, and target target if this is winnable games. And um, we're going to take a quick break and then after we'll do five minutes on uh, just what we expect after the international break from Everton and. Um, what we expect from the Crystal Palace game in a fortnight. All right, just going to do um, just quickly have a look at um, what Evan have got after the kind of rather strangely timed international break. Um, Everton, obviously, I, I guess part of the first thing I was going to say was that like this, this at the moment feels like everyone just kind of wants a bit of a break from Everton at the moment. Um, it feels like 
I'm going to put here, it feels a bit like that that break in, in Marcus Silva's first season of 17 days or whatever, but do you feel like the international breaks come at a good time for Everton? I do. I do. I mean, we, we've spoken about the injury list, which seems to grow by the week and isn't just actually a first team level, but the under-23s have sustained an awful lot of injuries this year as well. Uh, I just think it's that's a, a byproduct in, in a sense of, of the season and the particular intricacies of, of this season. Um, but Everton have been affected badly and, and continue to be affected badly. So I think it will give an, I think it will give an opportunity for some of those lads to recuperate. I know mm. speaking on Friday before the Manchester City Cup tie, Ancelotti suggested that he would hope to have more or less a fully fit squad for that Crystal Palace game. Chance Hammers Rodriguez comes back. Bamin and a few others likely to resume full training this week, the week we're recording. The only one would be Ducore, really. It kind of, well, he's not going to be back by then because he could he could be out for another month or two. Um, so for him, it, the focus is going to have to be getting back getting back before the end of the end of the season. If Everton do get say a Hammers back, if they are if they get Gabam back in midfield, they they have a relatively clean bill bill of health elsewhere. Then I think that does set them up quite well. The problem with somebody like Hammers, not only has he missed a lot of games, but he's and a lot a lot of time. He spends a lot of time on the sidelines. But I think it's been compounded this year by that schedule that we spoke about. It everything's like if you if you're out for a week, you actually miss three games. Uh, at, at, on, on some occasions and that's been an issue that's been a big big issue for Everton to be without somebody like him for, for that length of time so I do think it's coming a good break I, I think it's almost like a reset button it'll allow hmm. supporters to take a little bit of a breather things got pretty negative over the last couple of games and then I also think it allows Ancelotti that much needed time on the training ground with, with Davide and with with Duncan Ferguson to hatch something, to hatch new plans to to carry them forward into the final ten games. You, know, you, you only have to look at the season so far, and I just think, like like we were saying, we've lurched from one system to another, and it's all been about adapting to the personnel at Ancelotti's disposal. So it's formation to formation, and then back to another one. And it, with Rodriguez a lot of those problems seem to go away or at least partially go away. So I, I do think it's coming a good time. I, th- I think collective, certainly among the fan base, I think it's quite a good time for fans to have 16 days without Everton. Um, as a journalist, I don't get 16 days without Everton, unfortunately. No. Um, and I, I could probably do with that myself at, the, at this stage, to be honest. Um, we've still got quite a lot to consider with the, with the under 21 euros and, Injury mm. problems and, and putting pieces on the site. Um, yeah, I just I, I just hope that it's an opportunity really for for, for for Everton to get players back. Do you think the obviously it's Palace home next? Um, you know, our our lack of home form is obviously well documented. But do you think in some ways Palace might be a good team for Everton to play because I think the common factor you would say about Burnley, Fulham, and Newcastle is they all have something to play for in terms of their survival. Palace. On thirty-seven now, probably safe. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying Everton will or should underestimate them, but Palace to me feels like one of the nicer 
home games, Everton could ask for to come back from an from, you know straight three straight defeat before an international break. Yeah, in in a sense, uh, I see what you mean. I I personally think they're out of that relegation scrap now. Yeah, very much see it as maybe even Burnley might get dragged in, but Newcastle or Fulham for that final place. You think Palace are fine, and towards the end of the season, they're usually the, op- the that's usually the opposition you want to face. You want to face those sides. You don't want to face anyone with much to play for. What I would say about Palace is they'll, they'll present a similar challenge, I'd say, to a to a Burnley. Maybe they won't press quite as high as Burnley did at times, but they're pretty rigid, pretty structured, all things considered, or they try to be. And often it's a case of break us down, we'll send you wide, break us down, put cross into the box and we'll hope to defend them. Everton, when Everton don't get aerial dominance... I think we see the paucity of options creatively, mm. and again, it goes back to being very dependent on Hammers to, cre- to 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 create something with passing. Um, Palace tend to defend those things quite well, those kinds of scenarios quite well. What I would say though is that most of the worst performances this season that I've watched have come from Crystal Palace. When they get it bad, when they get things wrong, they are thoroughly abject, and I actually think what they need more than anything is a bit of a refresh themselves over the summer. And they've got a manager that kind of has one way of doing things and a group of players now that you would say has served them well in the Premier League, has consolidated their position, but hasn't pushed them on or shown any real sign of pushing them on. Now they're all now those guys are all 29, 30, 31, 32 and slightly over the hill. Um, very, very dependent on Wilfred Zaha. So it'll be interesting to see... Uh, don't, I don't know what the latest update is on him, but basically all of their attacking intent goes through him or or Eze. Um, and Everton will have to watch out for, for Eze, even if, if Zaha doesn't play. Um, but I'll always go back to the point that if Everton get enough players out on the pitch in this squad, they are more than capable of winning these matches, even if they open up a little bit. Seamus Coleman probably has to come in at right back and continue to play at right back because I just think he carries the ball. And he discombobulates defences in a way that most mm. of those other guys don't against the low block. He was, he was excellent, I thought, in the reverse fixture. I know it was a while ago and a lot changed since then, but I thought he had a, he was outstanding against Palace um, in a real slog of the game, wasn't it? Um, yeah, but that, that that was Everton, I think, pretty much close to their zenith this season. That yeah. run of fixtures. I don't, I don't just mean the Crystal Palace match, but that run of fixtures. What we had was this 4-3-3 where... James was was actually playing as a wide right forward, but had the the rain really. The, he had free rein to basically come inside and do whatever the hell he wanted, just because he's that good. And then on the other side, you had Gomez to the left of a midfield trio, which I think is his best position. And both those guys, particularly Gomez, if if Gomez is good at anything, it's that quick switch of play. We've seen it quite a lot this season from him. And the two of them would come inside and be pinging those diags to both flanks. And you had Coleman and Dean bombing on. And it was just so hard to defend because Thames would pick up a pocket of space and you had Richarlison stretching the defence, Calvert-Lewin as an aerial threat, Luca Dean's crossing. That's quite a varied attacking threat, if you think about it. Whereas now, effectively, what we're saying is without James, you're praying for a set piece or for Luca Dean to put a cross on Calvert-Lewin's head. That's just... 
mm. as a focus. That's just way too narrow. So yeah, I, I kind of yeah. look back. I, I kind of look back to those days with quite a lot of fondness, but also a bit of regret. It's like, well, if they kicked on from that, if they continued that blueprint and they kept those players fit, where would they be this season? Um, I suppose we'll never know. Mm. But the, clo- the closer they get to that, the more likely they are to beat a side like Palace. I think it's an eminently win- winnable game. The problem is that we've said this four or five times in the past couple of months, and Everton have proceeded not only to to draw some of these matches, but also go on and lose an awful lot of them too. Yeah, I think, um, like you say, it's 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 not the worst fixture certainly for Everton to return to, and, and hopefully, you know, with a bit of, bit of a break now, they can they can kind of return with a sort of renewed sense of yeah for the rest of the season and just just focus on qualifying for Europe. Um, Paddy, thanks very much for coming on today. Um, I know it's not the no most positive podcast um, <laughs> to talk about, but uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us today. So thank you. Yeah, no no worries at all. Pleasure to be on, like I said. No um, do you want to tell people where they can find you stuff? And I don't know if you've got any offers on The Athletic at the moment. I know you're subscribing and that. Oh, you put me on the spot there, Matt. Um, okay. I'm not a very good salesman, as I'm sure <laughs> most people would already know by now. Um yeah, you'll find me on Twitter at Paddy underscore Boyland. Um, so please give me a follow if you haven't already. Um, and then it's the Athletic UK on Twitter as well. And yeah, it's just, we. I think we'll look to do some slightly different things during the international break. It's a case of reflecting on what's been, reflecting on what needs to be, I think from an Everton perspective, but then also get into what I consider to be the good stuff of my job, which is the kind of the... the it, the, the longer features and the interviews and stuff like that. So I, I interviewed Nikola Vlasic not so long ago. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed, really yeah, enjoyed, enjoyed that. Um, really good talker, quite honest and open and reflective. Um, so head over to the athletic site and read that if you haven't, had, haven't done so already. And then, yeah, I'm, unfortunately I'm going to have to disappoint you on the, what, what the latest athletic offer is, Matt. Um, I have no idea. And I'm sure that'll be something that, uh, if anybody from the athletic listens to this, they'll chastise me for that at a later date. Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining anyway. And uh, you guys for listening, thanks very much. Um, don't forget to subscribe and follow. We'll be back after the Palace game to hopefully review a rare home win for everyone.